welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that is so ready for spooky season. Today we have Ozzy, Zoe, and Adelaide. And today we're getting into the holiday spirit with a special episode on horror creators of color. We're going to specifically talk about the history of Black American horror movies, and then we're just really going to get into some horror movies and possibly a few books that we want to recommend to you this Halloween, um, or really any time of year, I think. It can be spooky season year-round, you know? Yeah. If you are like us. (laughs) is year-round, in my opinion. Yeah, Um, exactly. Especially, especially, like, I think, I mean, listeners may know I'm a big horror fan mm-hmm. year round. Mm-hmm. Um, I was reading this article about queer horror in Autostraddle that Me Drew too. Gregory recently wrote. Yes. Um, yeah. And I, the first like paragraph is amazing and I just wanted to read it. Even if you're a horror movie fiend all year round, there's something special about watching them in October. Instead of just following your ghoulish whims, you're participating in a time-honored gay tradition. And that's community, baby. Um, <laughs> I just thought that was cute. And I'm like, yes, I, I do Drew watch Gregory. horror year round. Yeah, but exactly. Yeah, Incredible. This is, this is the time when it's everyone else is also doing it. So I'm like, don't feel like these recommendations are limited to October, but also enjoy them at the time when everyone else is also going to be watching horror movies. Absolutely. Um, and I just wanted to give a little PSA for our listeners that I'm mostly here for the vibes today, even though I also fucking love horror. Um, but, you know, I just didn't want y'all to think that I got killed off in the first scene, like a classic horror trope. <laughs> um, so I'm grateful to Ozzy and Zoe for holding it down while my life has been literally pure chaos. Any time. <laughs> Um, I also have a PSA that I definitely was not blackmailed into. Um, My my dear friend Matt is an ally to the cause. Um, This this PSA is coming from the fact that this man can find any movie that you want on the internet and download it. And so he helped me a lot with the list of movies that I was watching for this week (laughs) and downloaded them all for me. And in return, would like a public announcement of being an ally, which clearly he is. Fuck he yeah. so is. That's beautiful. However, because he's like- a man and I have multiple friends named Matt, I will not be sharing which one it is. Yes. <laughs> Amazing. Keep the mystery alive. Spooky season. <laughs> Take that, Matt. <laughs> Someone named Matt. There's one Matt yeah. out there who's an ally and you can find him. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> Your quest begins with <laughs> Um. Well, yeah, I feel like that is relevant also because like some of these movies are hard to find because Mm -hmm. they were like not necessarily given proper attention in their time or various other reasons that we'll talk about um but yeah let's let's get into some of the history so i was watching this movie that just came out on shutter that's called horror noir um and it had like a really amazing just sort of overview of like beginning of American film until now, like what has the state of Black folks working in the film industry around horror been? 
Um, and it's this movie is based on a book, which I think is also called Horror Noir, and it's by um, this historian, Robin R. Means Coleman, who is also interviewed a lot in the film. Um, her work is really cool, and I definitely want to look into more of her written work now that I've watched this movie. Um, but yeah, I just kind of wanted to like summarize a little bit of what was in this film in terms of like the history of the film industry, and then we'll kind of go into like other other things we're excited about um that are you know go beyond that um but i feel like oh one of the things that i liked about this movie is that they have extensive interviews with kind of like any important like actor writer director like pretty much everything we're going to talk about they interviewed someone who was part of that um so I think that was like really cool just to see um, a lot of Black actors and writers and directors who have been, some of whom have been in the industry since like the 70s or 80s, um, kind of talking about like what their experience was like when they got started with their career and like what has evolved over the course of their working lives and kind of like how racism and anti-Blackness in the industry has evolved over that time. Um, so let's get into this history. So this movie, Horror Noir, starts out with the historian Robin Armin's Coleman explaining this really interesting argument she has that basically she considers Birth of a Nation the first horror feature film. Um, like that's often presented as the first feature film uh, in the US, but she argues that it was intended to create terror of Black people in presumed white viewers, um, because I'm I'm sure we've talked about this on the show before. Anyone who doesn't know, Birth of a Nation, racist film about the KKK killing Black people. But it's also, she basically argues that, like, not only is it sort of this, like, thing that's intended to create terror of people of color but also it is terrifying to watch as a black person because someone made this horrifying racist movie like it's sort of scary to watch it and be like this like this is how somebody feels about me essentially um and so she sort of is just talking about how like seeing that even like out like at that time or around that time as a Black person would also be really scary and is sort of like an originator of horror in this sense. Um, so then they move on to talking about this time period of kind of like the 20s to 40s, but basically like, you know, early eras of the film industry. Um, it was a time period of basically like any roles for Black folks were either they had to be in blackface even if they were already black to because you know the blackface image is like a much darker skinned than many black people actually are um and basically like horribly stereotypical characters were the only roles available and sometimes they were played by white people in blackface as well um but even if black actors were actually hired it was just like the roles available sort of fell into either this like racist faithful servant mammy kind of trope or like racist voodoo practitioner evil witch doctor trope um they did talk about in this movie there was one sort of notable exception to this this movie called son of ngagi that came out in 1940 
Um, and while it had a white director, the writer was Black, which was pretty rare at the time. Um, it was written by Spencer Williams, who also starred in Amos and Andy. Um, and the entire cast was Black. It was the first sci-fi horror film to feature an all-Black cast, um, which included the leading role, who was a woman scientist, which was also quite unusual at the time. Um, so in the documentary, they talked a bit about how, just like how important it was to see a Black woman in like a, you know, like competent role and like leading a film. And then also she's a scientist. Um, unfortunately, moving into like the 50s and 60s, there was basically a focus in horror. It was like an era when horror and sci-fi were much more melded in terms of like genre film. Um, so a lot of horror adjacent work was focusing on science and technology and even like Son of Ngagi is a sci-fi horror movie. So this meant that like a lot of the leading roles and even supporting roles were like scientists and people working in labs or, you know, working in like cutting edge technology. And mostly those roles were presumed by production teams and directors that that had to be white. Um, so occasionally black actors might be there playing small side roles, but in general, like the leads were all right, all white. And most of the like creative production team, like the people controlling what the movie is about were mostly all white at this time. Um, so moving into the 70s and 80s um so this was an era where black exploitation films started to kind of become a thing so that because it was considered genre film there was a bit of overlap with horror and some crossover films that we'll talk about but for a lot of these movies the money made ultimately went to white people even though the casts were mostly black um so again, it's kind of this thing of like, there are roles for Black actors, but a lot of times the creative team or like the people in charge, the people making money are white. Um, and essentially the Black creators involved would just sort of have to do their best to work within these like racist limitations in order to make the movie they wanted to make or to like give the portrayal of a role that they wanted to give. Um, a lot of these movies focused on like, more sort of marginal characters like drug dealers and sex workers um but you know that has like obviously some flaws in that black folks still were not getting to play like the role of a scientist in these movies but they often still were like the first time that black actors were given leading roles in mainstream films um although again often still like the writers directors might still be white and there were some limitations in that um, but I think one notable exception that they talked about was Blackula, which came out in 1972. Um, so that had a Black director, although he is interviewed in uh, Horror Noir and he talks about the fact that like his entire crew and like the entire creative team besides that was white um, and the funders were all white. So he sort of talks about how he had to work around that in order to make this movie, which ended up being like less beholden to the racist things that the white creators wanted um but you know he still had to work around like a lot of stuff and just to kind of give you a sense of the racism that like a still currently working director has dealt with in his life um one headline from the 70s that they showed in this documentary read quote william crane comma 
a black comma selected oh, to direct first black vampire movie yeah it's just like what what a time <laughs> um normal but yeah just it's like it's it's definitely a shock to see like that or i mean not even a shock it's just it's very striking to see that said about a currently working director um who is not that old so sort of starting around the 80s up until arguably quite recently or like still today in some cases um there's kind of this trope of like basically the black character being the first to die um and they talk in the movie about how like that specific thing is not always true there are a few horror movies from the 80s and 90s where there are characters of color who don't die first but they do almost always fall into kind of like a sidekick or supporting role um so like even in horror movies that are being marketed to black audiences they're not necessarily the leading roles um which for black exploitation films even though there was like obviously this issue of who's making the money from these products at least there were like films being marketed to black audiences that starred mostly black people and that shifted to where like most horror movies have majority white casts with maybe like one black friend one friend of color um and then there's also this thing that starts to happen which i think is similar to something we've talked about with like queer characters in film um in horror specifically where like starting around the mid 80s there is a little bit more of like black characters are sometimes the main villains or like the main forces of evil which can be a big role potentially even like a main role but also kind of has a negative connotation or like it's still portraying black people as like monstrous rather than the you know heroes of the story um so all of that said let's get into some horror movies that were created by black and brown writers and directors we're gonna kind of like focus on that because like i was alluding to um like writers and directors can often have more control over a project and just because something has black characters that doesn't mean the stories are being treated thoughtfully um but there are also definitely some that we want to talk about that involve actors of color who like took on a important role in that production um and you know actors are important to projects too so i don't want to overlook that um and i think nothing exemplifies that better than the first movie we're going to talk about which is night of the living dead um Ooh. yes i i love this movie uh it came out in 1968 i actually just watched the whole thing pretty recently um and i'm really glad i did because it's it starts out a little bit slow but it's really worth watching um it's basically the movie that invented the zombie trope that we're familiar with today i really like the concept of zombies as a monster as we know it today um, it was directed by this guy, George Romero. Uh, he grew up in the Bronx. He is half Cuban and half Eastern European, which same. Um, and he's a white Latino, but I'm going to mention him a bit just because he was involved in this production. Um, so he got his start as a production assistant on movies like the Alfred Hitchcock film, North by Northwest. Um, and then he moved up to directing TV commercials and corporate films like fire safety videos, stuff like that. He was like a technical director. Um, and he and two friends eventually had enough 
success to start their own production company. Um, and I've read they they hired a lot of black actors and other folks of color within the context of like the things, the commercials and things that they were shooting. Um, so eventually, like, you know, they had this equipment, they had a production company, and obviously they're really trying to make feature films. So they decide to shoot a feature film on their own with a budget of about $100,000 in total. Um, and when they finished the movie and it came out, it was so popular, it made about $30 million. Um, and it was just by pure, like, ratio of budget to income, it was one of the most profitable films ever at the time because it made like 250 times its production budget. Um, something I was reading about when I was researching that I didn't realize is that basically, so there was an error with the copyright process by the film's distributor where they like essentially just like forgot to put the copyright notice before the film played. Like, you know how there's always that thing that's like, you can't steal this or whatever. They just like forgot to put that in like the new edit of the film and showed it without that. And that basically meant like any distributor who wants to could just like, if they had a copy of the film, they're allowed to sell it. Um, so it meant that George Romero and his production company actually never really saw most of the money that came from this movie because it was automatically in the public domain when it was released. Um, but that accident also meant that other That's creators so could like, it really is. And it's like the fact that that just had like, that's just an accident a distributor can do that like cancels out all copyright um but i don't know i mean you know obviously we talk a lot on this show about limitations of copyright law and all of that but i think the cool thing about this is also that so basically other creators could just like remake this movie spoof it to their heart's content um and i think that is likely a big reason that this has had such a big place in the horror canon because Hell it was yeah. so easy for people to watch it and like play with it um so we love to see that um a little bit more about george romero's career that i thought was interesting so he made a sequel dawn of the dead in 1978 which also had a black co-star ken foray uh who also played the dad on keenan and kel fun fact um, and then George Romero also did a couple adaptations of Stephen King's work. He collaborated with Dario Argento, another big horror director. Um, and he even made one non-horror movie called Night Riders with a K, Night Riders. <laughs> it's a 1981 cult classic starring Ed Harris as the leader of a traveling motorcycle jousting troupe. Um, I haven't watched this yet, that but I sounds am very excited amazing. too. <laughs> yeah, let's do I it. I really feel, I feel like we should watch In it together. In the movie theater really at silly. Zoe's birthday. Yes, <laughs> yes, literally. Oh my God, I'm so down. For the people at home, for my birthday, I rented a large house where we'll be celebrating and there is an incredible movie theater that definitely doesn't look at all like it's also a brothel. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where we'll be watching this. Hell Yeah. <laughs> No, it's just like a lot of like red velvet everything. Um, yeah, so, I yeah. think that's the perfect place to watch this movie. Yeah, I'm. I can't wait. <laughs> um, and my friend I, Matt okay. will be there to find all the movies for us. Yeah. <laughs> Thank goodness. Okay. Oh <laughs> yes. Um. So okay, a couple other George Romero fun facts. He directed a 1973 movie called Season of the Witch. So. That's that's a fun uh, crossover with it. our podcast. He stole that from us. Of course. He, he did, yeah. <laughs> um, 
And I also read that he did not make a movie filmed entirely outside of Pittsburgh until 1994. Rust so like 20 Bell. years after he started Let's working. Go. And I love that. I just think that's such a fun fact. Fuck yeah. Um, so to get into a little bit of like what this movie actually is. So um, the star of the Night of the Living Dead uh, is named Dwayne Jones. He was an actor working part-time as a literature professor to make ends meet. Um, and he ended up getting the starring role in this film as a Black man at a time when, I mean, you know, 1968, really key year for civil rights. But obviously, like, Black folks working in the entertainment industry were not getting these kinds of roles, typically. Um, and partly because this was just, like, you know, a low-budget independent production they didn't have to go through the kinds of like red tape that a larger production might have had. So basically George Romero was just like, I like this guy. I want him to play the role. And that's how it happened. Um, unfortunately, his career never really took off in the same way as like George Romero's did after this, but he did play the lead in a 1973 horror movie, which is another kind of cult classic called Ganja and Hess. Um, which Spike Lee did kind of like a remake and homage to in 2014. Um, Dwayne Jones tragically died very young at just 51 years old of heart failure, um, and that was just 20 years after Night of the Living Dead was released. Um, so that is part of why like, you won't really see him in stuff um, after this movie came out. But at the time, it was just like, so he's he's the lead in this zombie horror film. And basically the premise of the movie is this white woman and her brother are going to pay their respects to, I think, their father who's passed away. When they get to the graveyard and they're kind of like laying flowers down, they get attacked by this zombie, run off and hide in this farmhouse because they're like way out in the country, far from where they actually live. Um, and then they encounter a few other people who have hidden out in this farmhouse as well, um, including this character played by Dwayne Jones, who becomes really the hero of the film and sort of protects everyone. He's like the smart one who's like, don't go in, in that door by yourself or whatever. Like, he's the one who kind of keeps them all alive. Um, and he, this is one of those horror movies where I don't think it's spoiling too much to say everyone dies. But he does make it until the end. He dies last. So that's, it's, it is like sort of a, a counterpoint to that, like the Black character always dies first thing. Um, and I think it was really groundbreaking to have a Black man not only in a leading role, but also playing a victim role, like playing the character who is being attacked and is fighting for his life um, was just like so different from obviously like the other kinds of horror that we have talked about that were going on at this time um so in terms of like why and how this was able to happen like why did a black actor star in this george romero has actually kind of said that like he didn't think about it that much essentially um i think like his his thoughts about this to me kind of reveal some of his limitations limitations in his thinking about race as a white latino but he originally wrote the role for a friend because, again, this was like a shoestring budget. Um, but then Dwayne Jones, who was like a friend of a friend, came to audition for the role. And Romero was like, basically, he was just the best person for the role. Um, and don't worry, his friend still got to be in the movie, just in a smaller role. 
Um, but Romero said essentially that the decision wasn't about race and like Jones was just the best actor they met. Again, they only met two actors, so this wasn't like an extensive casting process. But he said, uh, quote, Dwayne Jones was the best actor we met to play Ben. Consciously, I resisted writing new dialogue because he happens to be Black. We just shot the script. Um, which, I mean, you know, I'm very glad they didn't add a line that's just like, hello, I'm Black and here's what racism is. Because that would have been very right. silly. And like, yeah, it just, it wouldn't have been as effective as this movie actually is as like a piece of like, I don't know, as, as a piece of like Black history. Um, but I do think it's kind of telling that Romero didn't think that much about casting a Black actor. Like he didn't feel like that was a significant choice, even though in the context of how hard it was to get work as a Black actor, it obviously was a really big choice. Um, so yeah, that's. I just think that's interesting that it was sort of like happenstance, but then it it really ended up just being like such a groundbreaking moment for Black actors in horror. Um, and Robin Armines Coleman, who's the horror noir author, pointed out that Jones's character just like kills so many white people in this movie, which like... Um, Fred was which, stoked like, about it. <laughs> Fred it. Um, I guess just like ignoring everything else about the movie the fact that a black character kills so many white characters is just like a fun thing that it's like the fact that that was able to happen on film was sort of like groundbreaking in its own right um and coleman also just talks about how this had to be like terrifying for racists to watch um i also just thought it was interesting in horror noir they talk about how george romero and the production team like we're driving back to New York from shooting the movie um, and they like heard the news of MLK's murder on the radio while they were driving back. Um, and Coleman just kind of talks about like, she likes to imagine that they had some idea that like they had something important. Like, you know, they, had, they hadn't edited or released the film, but like they had the tapes um, of this movie. And yeah, it's just, uh, very iconic and really important um horror movie for many reasons that's such a wild anecdote also it really is it's just like what what a time to be a creator Truly. Um, and it also just makes it so funny that george romero was like it wasn't significant that i cast a black actor uh, like, i know truly like truly. sure dude. sure um <laughs> So I'm going to skip ahead a little bit to the 90s because honestly not much else of note besides uh, Blackula happened within this time period. But another movie I wanted to talk about is Handyman, which came out in 1992. Um, this to me is one of the best examples of a Black actor in a really iconic horror role but where there were still a lot of limitations in the fact that the writer of the book it was based on and the director were both white. Um, and it is obviously another example of the main black character is the villain. Um, and I, it's interesting because like Candyman has some similarities to this other movie Poltergeist, which is, I haven't actually watched, but I think most people know that like the premise is that 
the haunting happens because the like apartment complex or whatever is built on or the house i guess is built on a native american burial ground um what so a weird that, fucking trope that horror movies yeah, it's do just, it's so also random, a lot like, of indigenous people don't do burials in that way like obviously no yes, indigenous group i is honestly like i don't know modernist. how much poltergeist also like kind of created that tro- or like helped like create it's that as an idea in people's minds right. um, and it's like a white writer just made that up literally um, <laughs> but in in that movie like there aren't even any indigenous actors it's literally just like this is happening because of spooky native americans um <laughs> so like Candyman is kind of an example of that but there at least is an actual black actor but it's like the the black actor is playing a very scary like villain role who is attacking a lot of white people in the movie um although i mean this movie is interesting because a lot of the victims of violence are also black um so the premise of this movie is essentially there's this white grad student and she discovers the legend of the candy man which is a popular kind of like ghost story being told at cabrini green which is this housing project in Chicago. Um, It's a real place. It became kind of infamous for the amount of like neglect and unsafe living conditions there um, and was sort of like in the white imagination as like a dangerous place also because of like gang violence. Um, So over the course of the movie, it's revealed that the Candyman is a black man who was lynched in the early 1900s because of his relationship with a white woman. Um, and similar to Poltergeist, the story is that he was murdered on the site where the Cabrini Green homes were eventually built, which is why his ghost is seeking revenge there. So the residents historically there were mostly black. And in this movie, most of the people who die are black, although there are like the main roles are still white characters and some of those people die as well. Um, but it's like, it's just sort of like politically incoherent. It doesn't really make sense that a spirit who seems to be in control of who he's killing would like specifically choose to murder mostly like poor black children when there's like a perfectly good wealthy business district full of like white bankers right next to cabrini green it just kind of shows the limitations of like a white creator trying to create this myth around like a black character seeking revenge for his murder and just like how it doesn't really end up making much sense or like having a clear message because it's just sort of like i think they just sort of went with what seemed scary or seemed entertaining and didn't think so much about like what does this actually mean um so i think like it's a really entertaining movie in my opinion but it doesn't really have anything interesting to say about race or racism and that's disappointing for a movie that sort of like takes on these big topics and then it's just kind of careless with them in my opinion it's just sort of like tossing them around it's like you know lynching and like it's not really treated with like the seriousness that it deserves um but we will talk more in a little bit about Jordan Peele's more recent retelling of this myth which I think like politically and creatively like has it has a much clearer message and i think like does a much better job with this concept and story in some ways um but before we get into that let's talk about some other 90s horror 
Um, I know Zoe wanted to talk a bit about Tales from the Hood, which they talked about in the Horror Noir documentary, but I haven't seen it yet. So I'm very excited to hear your review and your takes. Oh, oh my god, wait, is it okay that I'm going to spoil it? Yeah, no, please spoil it. Okay. I also, I mean, honestly, I don't really believe in spoiling things that are this old. It's like, <laughs> I had no, the I opportunity agree. to watch it. Like, I had 30 <laughs> years to watch this movie. I haven't 100%. seen it yet. It's okay. <laughs> um, great. Well, what a film. Um, the budget was $10. Not really. It was $6 million, um, which is basically $10 in filmmaking. Yeah, just for, like, for film. context. I was just looking it up while Ozzy was talking. Candyman was like $30 million. Um, Barbie, $145 million. Of course, inflation, all these things to consider, but whatever, six million, very, very low. Well, and I, it shows. I could have thought Barbie might have been more. Like <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Um, so it was directed by Rusty uh Kundif, who also directed the nineteen ninety-three Fear of a Black Hat and um the Chappelle show from two thousand three to two thousand six. And Spike Lee was an executive producer of the movie. So this movie is just like this wild fever dream. Um, it opens with a skeleton smoking a joint and that is so iconic. <laughs> it is. Um, and yeah, I guess I'm just going to kind of describe what happens in this movie. So it's the, the premise is that you're following along these like three stoner dudes who go into this, um, like morgue mortuary to buy drugs from the funeral home director and in the process the funeral home director is like let me show you these dead bodies and tell you their stories and it'll like cut to these stories about these people uh i love that as a premise (laughs) so the prologue is called welcome to my mortuary and the three stoners their names are stack ball and bulldog um go in and yeah, then they are taken on this wild ride. So the first, like, kind of cut scene story that's shown is called Rogue Cop Revelation. Also, I'm just going to content warning for the rest of this that uh, content warning for basically every form of racialized violence um, because all of them happen in Tales from the Hood. They mm. really did the most. Mm. Um, so Rogue Cop Revelation. So the first story is that a man named Clarence Smith and Clarence is in the beginning a black cop and he's riding around with his white partner and they get called to what he believes is like a routine traffic stop. And there's already two white cops that are on the scene and they're like severely beating this black man who they pulled over. So Smith runs the license plate and discovers that the man who got pulled over is a city council man whose name is Ezekiel Morehouse, who was like a civil rights activist and had been crusading against police corruption. It kind of does like a cut scene to like a speech that this guy was giving before this happened. Um, And then Smith tries to intervene. The white cops get him back in the car and yell at him. And they explain like the code of like cops protecting each other. And they're like, you will never tell anyone what you saw, blah, 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 like blackmailing him essentially. Um, And so they get Smith to back off by saying they're going to take Morehouse to the hospital. Plot twist. The cops lied. So then. Wait, (laughs) what? (laughs) So then these initial two white cops that like were there put Morehouse back in his car, inject him with heroin that the cops are dealing. As they're injecting him, they're like, you were right. We are corrupt. Um, 
And then they make it look like he like got high and drove himself into the river. Um, yeah. That's and a then thing to do, honestly, it is. So then we cut to like, it's a year later, Smith quit being a cop after this. He's walking around like drunk. It's supposed to show like his life's falling apart. And then he gets this vision of Morehouse, the guy that was killed saying, bring them to me, bring them to me, bring them to me. So Smith's like, all right. And he goes and like finds the cops and he's like, I need I love you to come. that um, <laughs> little rendition we got though. I don't want us to like skip right past that beautiful acting moment that we just witnessed. Thank you so much. You're welcome. <laughs> so yeah, Smith is like, gets the cops. He's like, let's go to the grave. Was like threatening to tell what they did, but they're like, if we go down, you go down. But they're like, sure, we will come to the grave with you. Um, as and they were like, after we do that, you will drop it. So um, basically, then he brings the white cops go to the grave. Morehouse like comes out from the grave and is like haunting them and chasing them and all this stuff. Um, then Morehouse goes to Smith and is like, basically like, you betrayed me um, as like another black man and. Um, then that's pretty much it. We now we're back in the funeral home, and they're like, "Whoa, wah, wild!" And then they keep walking around, and then the guy's like, "Let me tell you another story." So now we're in story two, which is called "Boys Do Get Bruised." And in this one, the main character is a very very cute young boy named Walter Johnson who has these like mysterious bruises. Um, and he keeps saying they came from like a monster. So his teacher, you know, notices them and is asking him what's happening. And the teacher thinks they're from this other boy in school named Tyrone who was like bullying him. Um, but Walter's like, no, they're not from Tyrone. They're from the monster. And you see scenes of him in his room with like, um, there's like, it seems like there's kind of like this monster living in his closet kind of thing. And then like he keeps having bruises. So the teacher goes to visit his house. And Walter's mom was like, oh, he's just clumsy. He falls a lot. And to Walter was like, you're not supposed to talk about the monster. Plot twist. Another shocking plot twist. The monster is the mom's abusive partner. Who, like, nice. Walter has created in his mind as, like, this monster and, like, draws pictures of the monster because um, he's, like, coping with this. And it kind of shows, like, when the mom's partner comes to his room, he's, like, still imagining him as, like, a real monster. Or, you know, a, like, monsterized version. Right. Um, so the teacher sees this through the window, goes back in and fights him. And then it turns out that Walter's drawing of the monster, like, as he crumples it up, it, like, kind of works in, like, a voodoo way. And, like, the 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 guy, the abuser guy, is, like, getting injured and like dying and then they light the ball on fire and then the guy's gone amazing <laughs> that was easy iconic <laughs> yeah um and yeah then then you're briefly back in the mortuary and then we go into story three which is called kkk comeuppance and so this one is about duke metker who's like a racist southern senator he's based on the real life senator david duke um and he's a former member, former, in quotes, member of the KKK. So the senator's in his office filming this, like, ridiculous campaign commercial where they say whatever the fuck those people say in their commercials. And then he sees protesters outside his office. And he's told that it's a 
group of like Jewish and black people who are teaming up to protest against him for, for being racist and a former Klansman. And, and for the fact that his office is set up on an old slave plantation. So someone warns Classic. the reporter. Happens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so then this black man, like you see him kind of come on the like news screen to the reporter and is saying um, the plantation is haunted by dolls. These like voodoo dolls that are animated by the souls of tortured slaves. Meanwhile, Duke and his um, like this, his assistant named Rhodey, who is, like black and supposed to help him with like his image notice that there's this painting of someone named miss Cobbs who was a voodoo witch um and her dolls are like in this painting with her so duke and Rhodey are working on duke's media skills while Rhodey falls down the stairs and dies um and it's later learned that the doll who was seen under the floorboard earlier like caused his death and then later they notice that there's a blank spot on the painting and Duke comes in contact with the doll that he had thrown out on the street and, like, has a fight with this doll. Then Duke oh, no. throws a vase at the doll and it disappears and attacks Duke out of nowhere trying to eat him. Um, <laughs> also, I need you to keep in mind that all of these scenes had a production value of $5. And so, like... Yes, the camp level is probably <laughs> right. pretty Yes, it's off the charts. <laughs> yeah. Um, it just, you really didn't lie. Like, they did not shy away from any, like, extremely serious topic of racist violence. But then it's also like, and then a doll is fighting him. <laughs> yeah. Yes, everything is happening at once yeah. in, this, in all, this film. All the tones, like. <laughs> <laughs> so Duke gets injured, um, but he manages to stop the doll by beating it with an American flag. <laughs> That's so silly. America. <laughs> and then Duke takes the doll outside to his porch and ties it to a dartboard. He's then like shoots the doll with a gun. Um, <laughs> it's like so fucking absurd. And then Duke begins chasing several small footsteps throughout the house. He hears these footsteps and he's like looking for them. And he finds the previously shot, the doll that he shot in the hallway, reattaching its head. Oh, and no. then the doll attacks again and chases Duke into his office. Duke wraps himself in an American flag as the dolls converge and devour him. Um, and then Miss wow. Cobbs, yeah, Miss Cobbs, who's the the voodoo witch from the painting, disappears like disappears from the painting, manifests herself in the room holding the first doll in her arms, and then her and the doll just like smile and watch him die. Wow. <laughs> Iconic. <laughs> um, yeah, and so at this point, we are three quarters of the way through the movie, and yet we haven't gotten to the wildest parts yet. <laughs> oh my god, amazing. So the fourth like big story is called Hardcore Convert. And this story follows this man named Jerome and quotes Crazy K. Johns. They call him Crazy K throughout the story. Um, and so he was like a violent gang member. He's driving down the streets of LA in his Mustang when he notices a car of an enemy who he's been like trying to kill for a while and he follows them. He parks in a neighborhood and has a brief argument with this like enemy person and then shoots him. Um, in retaliation, there's three men that come and shoot Crazy K and just as they're about to kill him, the police arrive at the scene. So 
due to one of the shooters firing at the police officers, all three gunmen are shot and killed by the officers. Um, This is important. This will come back. Crazy K is badly injured but survives only to get arrested and sent to prison. And then this guy, Dr. Cushing, arrives at the prison and transfers him to another facility that's like hidden deep underground. Crazy K meets another um, incarcerated person who is a white supremacist and is like raving about how he like killed black people and how he like wants an end to black people. And of course, Crazy K punches him in the face. But then over time, they bond because Crazy K is like, hey, I also killed other black people. Um, so they're right. Oh, we're trying no. to cover like interracial or you know, <laughs> interracial violence, like black right. on black violence in communities. Um, and so then the white supremacist is like, "Oh hell yeah!" Like I love you. And then they like become friends, um, kind of. <laughs> and <laughs> oh my god, yeah. So the white supremacist grows fond of Crazy K and tells him that there will be a few black people who will be spared as long as they think like him. So he's basically like, "Crazy K, you get to live. Like you're not going to be killed like all the other black people in my like master plan." Oh my god. Um, and yeah, so then Crazy K is put through this like process of torture to have him learn the consequences of his actions. And this isn't by the way, this is like by the facility. And so Dr. Cushing tries to make him a new man and help change his like violent ways. And during part of this process, he's put in a sensory deprivation chamber and he's confronted by all of the souls of his victims. And he has to explain why he killed them. And the souls haunt him more and more. But he grows increasingly uncaring of his actions. Like, he doesn't really want to tell them or, like, doesn't want to talk to them. And so he refused this, like, chance for redemption for his sins. And he's transported back to the moment when he was shot. And Crazy K is brutally shot dead by the three gunmen. And the story ends there with him dying. Like, he doesn't then get to live and go through this, like, redemption process. Okay. So now we're in the epilogue which is also called Welcome to My Mortuary. This is when we get the real plot twists of the movie. And it's revealed that the three stoners that are in the mortuary were the three people that shot Crazy K. Oh my God. The (laughs) the ultimate plot twist. (laughs) Yes. And they get angry and they're like demanding to know how the funeral director knows of their murder. And they're like threatening to kill the funeral director because they're like, why are we here? You tricked us. Like, how did you know this? And Sims, who's the funeral director, leads them deep into the funeral home and tells them that their reward is in these three closed cas- caskets, and each of which has their corpse inside. Oh, no. Um, and so they're terrified to learn that they are, in fact, dead. Um, I also and the funeral- when that happens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hate when you find out you're dead by seeing your corpse. Yeah, and you've been dead this whole time. Yeah. And the funeral director <laughs> explains that after they killed Crazy K, some of Crazy K's boys killed them in retaliation. And so one of the guys, Bulldog, then asks him why they're still alive if they're dead. <laughs> and, um, like, the very eccentric funeral homeowner tells them or director tells them that they're not in a funeral home but they are in hell he then transforms into satan the walls of the funeral home like shatter and reveal that they are actually in hell and the funeral home director is 
the devil and their fate is now to burn in eternal damnation along with others as he laughs. I need to see this movie. That's incredible. (laughs) So I think like (laughs) coming back to the theme, right? It's, you know, this is a film that was like made and included pretty much entirely like black folks. And I mean, right. They're like sent to hell for the crime of like having killed other black people. And I think it is really trying to address you know, the, like, violence that happens in Black communities and kind of the, like, system that that comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's also seen in the one with, like, the mom whose abusive boyfriend is also a Black man. The teacher's also a Black man. Like, pretty much everyone in it. Um, right. So, like, they're addressing a lot of themes. I don't think it's my place to say there were too many themes, but there is a lot going on. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. It sounds like there's there's a lot of different stories, also at the very least. It sounds like they were like, "What is every racist thing that's happened, and how do we include all of them?" Yes, I and also like, they mentioned in Horror Noir that they made like a sequel to this at some point. I think there's like four. A, okay, there's amazing. like four of them. Yeah. Um. I just yeah, watched it the was first like one. I think much <laughs> later, but like it was such a cult classic that like people were excited about more content it within this universe yeah and it is such a combination of like heavy camp but then also like i mean really like sad themes and a lot of like pretty intense things happening but then also it's just like mm-hmm. ridiculous like even in the um the one with the domestic abuse like these scenes are just so over the top fake that it's like it's just like clear, like it's just like so over the top campy that everything in it is like so deeply unreal. Like it shows like in those like a lot of the fight scenes, it like shows the shadows and you can tell how much they're like not even close to like actually like hitting each other. <laughs> yes. That's definitely, I mean, I feel like Night of the Living Dead kind of avoids it by just not having as many, like, fight scenes, but that's also very low budget, so mm-hmm. a lot, I feel like a lot of these that we're talking about are like, yes, they, the special effects were not, they were not, like, you know, the the fancy special effects, but <laughs> They that's really fine. were not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but I think next we want to talk about The Craft from the 1996 yes. version One and specifically <laughs> Rachel True's role in in that film. So Rachel True who plays Rochelle in The Craft became like a really integral part of production. So it was difficult for her to get cast and she's talked a lot about that um like her own uh not casting director like what are they called? Uh like her agent yeah, her, like, agent was like, oh, you shouldn't audition. And they also said that she was too old. She was actually 30 in the film, which is kind of wild. But, like, all of the, they're all, none of them are in high school. No one who plays someone in high school right. is in high school. So, anyway, it was, like, hard for her to, like, get the chance to audition. But then once she was cast, the script was actually, like, rewritten to include the subplot of the, like, racist popular girl who, um, like, they get revenge on through their witchcraft. So, like, once they cast her... Um, it became kind of like a big part of the production of like how to include those elements. Yeah, I thought this was interesting because they so they interviewed Rachel True in the horror noir documentary and she talked a little bit about like, basically she just said when she went into the audition, I guess they like asked them to prepare a monologue that was like about 
whatever the sort of like key problem their character deals with would be so like one of the characters has scars um like there's each of them sort of has like a reason why they're bullied or feel like an outcast um and so Rachel True went in with a monologue about having an eating disorder and she was like this is what I want my character's thing to be and they were like no it should be racism um and she was kind of like what like why would we do that um like it just hadn't really occurred to her um and I feel it's like I feel mixed about it because I do think it's sort of annoying for like the creative team to be like well it has to be like your thing has to be racism because you're black um but then also like in this interview she was saying that she actually is glad in retrospect that they did that because like it ended up being so like it was very rare to see a portrayal of sort of like i don't know not i'm not even sure liberal racism is the right word but it's essentially like microaggressions or like how racism shows up in daily life in a way that's not like necessarily physical violence although there is a little bit of like physical messing with her for sure but um like seeing that sort of everyday high school racism portrayed on film um and rachel true said that like a lot of like black girls have come up to her and been like thank you for doing this because this is like something that was so meaningful to me to see this on screen um so yeah it's just it's interesting that like the creative team was sort of just like well we have a black actor i guess we'll add a plot line about racism um but then it ended up being this like kind of important thing especially for horror fans yeah in terms of the the plot of the movie i think this is this sums it up well also if you haven't seen the craft yet i, I don't know you should i mean all of these movies you should see but um it's important <laughs> i recently saw a tweet that said the craft is mean girls but with witchcraft but actually the craft came first and so my opinion is that mean girls is the craft without witchcraft exactly. which is much more boring um, but so <laughs> following the film, the, so there's four main characters. Three of them are white. The other is Rachel True. Um, and so the three white girls who are the main characters got a lot more like opportunities and recognition. And one example of that is, um, Rachel, this is a, a tweet from Rachel True. It says that year MTV had the three white craft girls present at movie awards. I was not included or invited. I went as a guest of someone. This was standard operating procedure at the time. So there were just a lot of times that the three white girls were like used in promotion and things like that. And she just mm -hmm. wasn't invited. Um, but she also was quoted saying, it's a big movie in terms of my career, but it's also a big movie for black people out there. It's one of the first teen movies that wasn't a black teen movie or a white teen movie. And then also just because this is season of the bitch, I wanted to share some fun facts I learned while doing this research about the movie. So um during the I'm obsessed with this <laughs> during the invocation i knew that you would be um on the spirit scene when they're on the beach like a bunch of spooky shit went down and there were a lot of examples of this during the film but so um a colony of bats appeared and were like hanging out on set and the waves like rose up and extinguished all the candles they were using for the scene and um, director Andrew Fleming described, quote, every time the girls started the ceremony and only when they would start the ceremony, the waves would start coming up tremendously fast, pounding heavily. Then right when Nancy says her line, Manoa, fill me, right at that exact moment, we lost power. It was a very strange thing. Spooky. Yeah. And so mm, like they had, <laughs> they had like a, um, 
like witchcraft consultant kind of person for the film. So like it was based off actual rituals, but they made up Manal who's like the main deity in their in like these girls <laughs> practices um because they didn't want people to like watch the movie and then invoke real deities without right. knowing what they were doing so, it's funny because oh, yeah. since yeah. then manon like is on lists of deities because a lot of people didn't know that that was like made up for the film that's so funny um and there is a a similar there's a deity named like mananon who uh has to do with like water so it was like vaguely based off that but they were purposely not exactly using like a real thing but now people think it's a real thing amazing um well okay so just to close out our little history section two other movies i wanted to mention quickly that i haven't seen yet but they talked about in horror noir and i've heard good things about um so honorable mention to Eve's Bayou from 1997, which is this, it's like horror, also kind of like gothic drama vibes. Um, but it was directed by Cassie Lemons, who is a black woman and also has a majority black cast. It's kind of like a retelling of the like voodoo trope within horror, but in a much more, in a way that's like actually relevant to ways that people actually practice voodoo and like there is much more specificity to the story as opposed to just sort of being like it's voodoo and that's like all that's really said about the practices um and then another one i wanted to mention getting slightly into the 2000s is bones which is from 2001 um so this is directed by ernest dickerson who is also black and it stars snoop dogg which is just incredible. It's kind of like there's a sort of an homage to like black exploitation films, so it has that like campy tone to it. Um, but I also am just like the fact that Snoop starred in a horror movie is amazing. That's most of what I know about it. Oh, also a uh, Pam Greer was in it. Um, so that's iconic. Um, check it out. So moving into kind of like some newer stuff, which I think we're just kind of defining as like within the last 10 years because time is fake. And I also think that's like around the time period where we started to see like slightly more directors and writers of color, like starting to get a little bit of a foot in the door. And then as we'll talk about, Jordan Peele kind of like busted that door down a little bit um but yeah let's start out with this movie the invitation from 2015 yeah so the invitation was directed by karen kusama who also directed jennifer's body which we're not going to get into but we certainly have before and we it's love. a fave of probably all of ours yes. Yes. <laughs> um super basic premise because i know ozzy's gonna get into a little bit more of the premise um a white man and his like relatively new black girlfriend go over to his ex-wife and her new partner's house for dinner. Um, they are the, the ex and her new partner are both white. Um, and they go over for dinner. It's like this old group of friends who's like reuniting after a couple of years after like a, you know, tragic event happened and chaos ensues at the dinner. So, um, a couple of things that are interesting about the film when the director was asked about the movie having a man as a as the main protagonist after like her early films, of course, were like these kind of like strong women leads. She 
said, I think it helps that I identify with Will, who's the main character, so much. I ultimately am probably a pretty anxious person. I see the whole movie as a metaphor for what the nightmare of anxiety really is, which is this irrational sense that people are trying to hurt you somehow. This movie explores the one time that irrational feeling is actually completely true. And um, she also commented on, on how she didn't want race to be a focus of the film, but was intentional about casting people from like various races in the movie that would have been easy. Like she recognized that it would have been easy to just kind of end up with this like all white ensemble having this like fancy dinner party horror film, but was intentional about making that not the case. Yeah, I remember loving this movie when I think I watched it like not super long after it came out. Um, and I had I don't think I've seen it since then, but from what I remember, there's not like a lot that's explicitly about race in it, but I feel like there's a lot of subtext about race. Like Zoe was saying, the main character is a white guy who's bringing his black girlfriend to meet his white ex-wife and their friend group. And from what I remember, the friends are mostly white. At least I don't think there are any black friends. Yeah, so there's a couple she... of Asian American friends, but there's no other okay. black people in the film. That makes there's sense. There's like a yeah. couple. Um, yeah. One of the like couples are both Asian. Got it. Okay. Yeah, I guess. So it's like she's she's the one black person there. And it's like there are, it's like maybe majority white or at least like the main people she knows there, like her partner and his ex are both white. Um, and it does kind of have this like get out vibe, though it is more understated and like subtext than the way it is in Get Out. But it's like, I, it definitely feels like it's a movie about sort of like being the one black person at a rich white person's house where it becomes increasingly clear that shit's about to go sideways and you're kind of the one person who's like, uh, like this doesn't seem chill. And everyone else is like, no, this is normal. Um, so that I, I really enjoyed that about it. Um, I also just wanted to mention if you like The Invitation, you should also check out Bodies, Bodies, Bodies and or The Reverse, because I think they have a lot of similarities. Um, Bodies, 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 I don't think really much of the creative team was people of color, if any. I know it was based on a story by Kristen Rupinian, who wrote that story, Cat Person, that went viral a while ago. But anyway, I just happen to know that she's white. But um, it does have Black actors in it, but it's also about um, like a couple sort of showing up to this friend reunion um but it's like a, more of a millennial gen z version of it but anyway since we're talking about get out a little bit let's get into like full-on get out territory so this came out in 2017 um and i think yeah zoe wanted to like give a bit of a overview intro to this yeah yeah i saw it in theaters when it came out and then i had not rewatched it until this past week um which was great because it also Amazing. recently came to netflix as did us which we'll also talk about um they both like just got on netflix so basic premise um it opens up you see white girl has black boyfriend and they're planning to go visit her family for the first time oh no sorry very opening scene we're in a suburb and there's this black guy walking around on his phone in the suburbs, talking to a friend, being like, kind of creepy out here. Suburbs are weird, man. And then um, he gets like, there's this car kind of following him. And he gets like, put in a hold and like, taken away. Um, this will come back. 
So that's the scene, which I didn't necessarily fully connect. Maybe I did the first time I saw it, but I forgot. And then this time I was like, oh, okay. So we have that scene. Then now we cut to like this happy couple um, and they're getting ready to go visit her family. And the boyfriend is like, does your family know that I'm black? Have you told them? And she's like, no, it doesn't matter. They're so liberal or whatever. And she's like, why does it matter? And he's like, oh, like basically like I would feel more comfortable if, if you told them, um, of course we, we know later in the movie, um, they, they did in fact right. know. She obviously <laughs> did tell them. <laughs> um, she's like fully in on this whole thing. So they go and it's just, I mean, this movie is so fucking creepy the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, but so they go and I'm trying to, how do you fucking explain this? It turns out that this family is doing this like new kind of operation where they're able to use someone's body and they're using black people's bodies and the like stem of their brain and implanting a white person's brain so that like they did it with like their grandparents and um people that like their body is you know deteriorating essentially because they're older and yeah using right. black people's bodies like to an, like an host their brain. thing yeah. combined with like the host slavery, kind of american slavery like yes. yeah it's like you like literally using black bodies as your like life source yeah and you see um they do like a silent auction where people who want this operation done are like auctioning to get to use this person's body um and so part of how they do this is that the mom is a um like hypnotist she says she's like a psychologist or psychiatrist um and so she hypnotizes people into what they call like the dark place or the sunken place um and well one thing i thought was interesting is that jordan peele was saying that that is a um metaphor for like being in the movie theater and just having to like watch whatever's being shown and created and like not really having control over that um i also think there's a really interesting connection to be made to like the feeling of dissociation that I think is, you know, mm. pretty widely understood um, of like not being fully in control of what's happening around you, of what you're doing, um, not feeling totally connected. And yeah, one thing I read when I was looking into it was about how, um, you know, when there are these like big budget films made by black people, they also, a lot of times like the people with money, the people who are funding it are still white. And so there has to be elements that play to like that audience. And so I was thinking about that in terms of like, it does set it up in this way where a lot of white people can still feel like, oh, they're like in on the joke of like the dad being like, I'd vote for Obama a third time if I could. It like allows white people to be like, oh, I'm not like that. Or like, I'm not this like overtly racist. That's those other white people. I think, like, a telling sort of meme I saw after this movie came out was, like, in Get Out 2, the dad would say, I love the movie Get Out. Like, it's kind (laughs) of, like, that type of, like, liberal racism. Right. Like, you could see that person also enjoying watching the movie. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. So, yeah, and that's not, like, a critique of the film. That's more just, like, I mean, a critique of the system of the entertainment industry of that that's like going to happen when there are these like kind of more mainstream like movies. 
Right. Um, yeah, I feel like also a lot of people that they interviewed in Horror Noir definitely cited Get Out as this kind of like tipping point in the industry because it did prove that a film with a Black creative team that was maybe not e exclusively aimed at a Black audience, but that was like part of the audience, um, that that could be successful and make a lot of money. Um, so I feel like just, you know, Jordan Peele as a creator, like we have to talk about the Jordan Peele cinematic universe because I feel like he's broken down so many barriers for other horror filmmakers of marginalized identities, really generally, I would say. Um, so after Get Out, Jordan Peele directed two straight up horror movies that I, in my opinion, they're a lot scarier. Like Agree. to me, Get Out is for non-horror fans, but yeah, like the next two, us and Candyman, I feel like are more so like, if you like horror, I think you'll like them. If you're not as much of a horror fan, probably skip them. Um, but yeah. So Us the was first... a lot scarier than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, I thought I they'd think... be like more along the same realm I think and no. Us is his scariest <laughs> in terms of like, just like imagery and like, like what happens on screen. It's just like a very scary and dark movie. Yeah. Um, and there's like jump scares and stuff. But I did find Us very entertaining, and I think I think it's a great horror movie, it's just not as good as Get Out, and so, like, I was disappointed because I think to me it's, like, Get Out is very much, like, a horror satire, like, it is a horror movie, but it's mm. also a satire of horror films, and I just felt like it had a much clearer point of view of, like, what it was trying to say about horror and, like, entertainment, I guess. Um, and in Us, I think there was just, like, it felt like there was a little more going on. There was, like, a lot of different imagery and a lot of different themes, and it didn't feel quite as cohesive. Like, I was a little more just distracted by everything that was going on. Um, and then I think in Candyman, to me, it went, like, a little further towards, like, there's just so many images and so many themes that, like, it got a little confusing at times, um, and I didn't think it was quite as good as his earlier two, but I, like, if you're a fan of Jordan Peele, I would definitely still watch it, or if you're a fan of Candyman, um, I do really appreciate that it was, like, this reclaiming of this story, which, like, I was talking about, it had kind of weird politics originally, um, and Jordan Peele turns it into this really, like, much, like, clearer concept, I guess, and it's something where mostly white people die like it's clearly someone who has experienced racist violence sort of coming back to take revenge on racists um which i think just makes a lot more sense as a concept so overall i still enjoyed it and i really like that he got to remake that um and then last but not least he directed nope uh i think last year's when it came out and I loved Nope. I think it's his best movie yet. And I honestly wouldn't even really classify it as a pure horror movie. Like, I think if someone else had directed it, it probably wouldn't really be classified as horror at all. I think it's more of a drama. Um, and I think, like, it could and should have been able to be in, like, the regular category at the Oscars. But it literally wasn't even nominated for anything, which is crazy. Um, at the Oscars, it did. It won a few smaller awards, but um, I just think it's telling that it was like completely overlooked in that sense. But I feel like Nope is very much about like 
it I mean it takes place in the west and there's a lot of scene like beautiful scenes of landscape and like humans riding horses um I think it draws a lot of inspiration from earlier stuff like Night of the Living Dead where it's like you're sort of isolated in this somewhat remote area and that's sort of part of the horror or like part of the question there is like how much do I fit into this landscape um and in Nope it's exploring this idea of like how do Black Americans fit into like the Wild West and like Western expansionism um like what is the complicity there and then what is like the harm that Black folks have also experienced from that and like where does that link up to current racism it just explores all of these really uh deep ideas in a really thoughtful way um and I guess I might have made this up, but I think I read recently that Jordan Peele said he didn't want to be like pigeonholed as a horror director after making Get Out. So I guess I'm just hoping like Nope is a sign of things to come and that he's like getting to do a little more of what he actually wants to do. And maybe like he was feeling a little more constrained with us and Candyman, um, or at least with Candyman. Um, so yeah, I'm just excited to see what he does next because I'm a huge fan of his work. Um, but last but not least, we wanted to talk about a very recent breaking news. Um, breaking we wanted news. to talk about the new Haunted Mansion that just came out. Yes, yeah, gonna close out with Haunted Mansion. I loved this movie. Um, it's directed by Justin Simeon, who notably directed Dear White People, the movie. And then he wrote and directed some of the episodes of the show that was made as a, as a spinoff. Um, but it, that wasn't like he, it, the show wasn't all him, but he was yeah. involved. In that's it. interesting because I remember loving the movie and then not liking the show mm. as much. So that, mm -hmm. that's interesting. I agree, actually. Yeah, I loved the movie and I watched the show and it was it was up and down. So. Yeah, I think there were more people yeah, involved. Maybe that and... explains it. <laughs> mm -hmm. So Justin Simeon has been referred to as, in quote, the next Spike Lee, which he is like adamantly against. He says that Spike Lee is definitely an influence for him and like helped show, quote, show that black people can make these types of movies. Um, but he doesn't want that to like put him in a box as a black filmmaker. And I think that kind of goes back to what Ozzy was just saying. Um, with Jordan Peele of like not wanting to like make one movie or like do one type of thing and then be considered like, Oh, that's like the next, this person, or like yeah. now you are a black horror creator. <laughs> um, so yeah, the haunted mansion reboot is super fun. It has an incredibly stacked cast, including um, Rosaria Dawson, Tiffany Haddish, Keith Stanfield, Jamie Lee Curtis, Danny DeVito, like honestly just fucking everyone is in this really? movie. It's like truly wild. Um, so worth noting, the original Haunted Mansion movie was 20 years ago in 2003 and was directed by Rob Minkoff, who is a white Jewish person, um, which I still think is significant because there's not a lot of Jewish directors either. Um, and it starred Eddie Murphy and, and Eddie Murphy's family. So like the main characters of the story were black in the original as well. And I thought the reboot did a really good job of like furthering this franchise's history of highlighting people of color in like a lot of cool ways. Um, so the director, he chose that he wanted to do this reboot. Like he brought it to them and was like, I want to make this like black led reboot of this film. Um, Cause it was like a film that he loved and also was like, could be better. Um, and I think that's really cool. So 
yeah, Simeon emphasized the importance of having a black lead in the film, especially considering that the story takes place in New Orleans, which has an 85% black population. He shared, quote, I wanted to make the movie as black as I can because that's New Orleans. Something I found super interesting is that the original didn't have any black ghosts, which Simeon pointed out didn't make any sense based on New Orleans history. Like, so I'll, yeah. I'll get into the story in a second, but there's there's a lot of ghosts. There's, in fact, 999 ghosts, um, and none of them were Black in the original. So he was like, mm, no. Um, and, yeah, it's very important to him that, like, some of the ghosts were Black. So the story, just in short, is, like, there's a haunted mansion. It has 999 ghosts. This, like, head ghost guy who's seeking revenge needs 1,000 in order to, like, do his ghost revolution thing. Um but the 1,000th the ghost needs to be a willing participant. And so he, like, preys on people's grief to get them mm. to, like, want to come to the other side Sneaky. to, like, reunite with loved ones. Um, not going to get too into that, but it is, like, it's a very, like, a heartfelt film. And also, like, very, like, fun and campy. Um, and, yeah, just one other quote from the director. He said... It actually is extremely radical to see black people, people of color and white people and people who just look like Americans facing these supernatural situations and coming together to get through them. And Simeon shared um, that was with from Salon Talks. And he said, that's actually still a very radical image for cinema for cinema. So like, right, having this stacked cast with people of all races that are like, let's fight these fucking ghosts together. Um and yeah, it's like very heartfelt. The ending is really emotional, um, but it's also just like so fun. Um, I highly recommend it. Yeah, I loved it. I thought it was great. Amazing. Yeah, I feel like it's also just nice that like Night of the Living Dead also was like one of the first times there was an interracial cast coming together to face the monsters. Mm -hmm. And I, I sort of like that that's a full circle moment. Mm. Um, I mean, it's also disappointing that it's still like that does still feel sort of unusual, partly mm -hmm. because of how marketing capitalism subgroups work. But like, I do think that it's it's cool that there are there have been people doing this work for quite a long time and like yeah. we're actually starting to see more mainstream films reflect that as opposed to just like one guy with 100k going to make his little movie by himself. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, uh, speaking of low budget beloved indie projects, <laughs> if yes. you'd like to support us. You can throw us some money on Patreon at patreon.com slash season of the bitch. Um, and if you give us some money there, you can join our Discord where we talk constantly about horror movies and also just general content that we love. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at season of the bee and rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you're listening to us. Send us some love in reviews oh my god jer that we had on a few weeks ago uh from the lavender room was like i've just started kind of listening to the backlog of all y'all's episodes and oh. i she was like i made the mistake of looking at the reviews and she was like there's literally so many that are just complaining about it being 
like whiny women talking about mm-hmm. nonsense, complaining, which like hilarious because none of us are women. But secondly, <laughs> literally, but uh, also rude. Also, you don't have to listen. <laughs> You it's literally Jer was like, You're it was literally pages of that. So yeah. you, our beloved listener, could switch that by bombarding it with positive reviews, and we would fucking love that. Also, yes. if you're listening right now and you hate our voices, you are under no obligation to listen to this podcast, and we wish you wouldn't. Exactly. Yeah, please just turn it off. I freak the hell I, off. We give you permission. <laughs> you are not obligated uh, to listen. But we're glad if you like us that yeah, you do. We we love we love you if you are enjoying listening to us. Exactly, exactly. Right. Please keep Stick listening around. if you like it. Yeah. If you don't, there are five million billion podcasts you could choose from that. Exactly. That other That's the do. accurate number. <laughs> yes, five billion exactly. million. Yes. I love y'all so much. Uh, love you. Love y'all. Love you. Bye. 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 Bitch.